All right, if you open that handout to page 17, we'll look at the third and fourth part of this argument regarding Ginea. So no more ancient Greek literature, I promise. No more strange words. We'll actually look at scripture. Specifically, we're going to look at Matthew 11, Matthew 12, uh, Matthew 23, and then we'll, we'll end up in Matthew 24. So um, I won't have as many slides in this presentation, but it might be helpful for you to follow along in your Bibles. While we go through those passages of scripture, what I'm essentially arguing is that Ganea is a character and a story. That Ganea in Matthew's account, this, this people, that's how I'm ultimately going to translate this group of people, they're kind of like the crowds that we're used to in the synoptics. Um, many synoptic scholars will refer to the crowds as a character. Or in John's gospel, we get that reference to the Jews, right? This reference to the Jews is always seems to be kind of critical. They have a hostile attitude towards Christ. As the story of Matthew develops, I think um, the Ganea plays a similar role. And one way this is shown is that it's tapped into an older story that they're all familiar with. A story that began in Deuteronomy 30 through 32 and then continued through the Old Testament. So I'm going to pick up at the bottom of page 17. I'm talking there about a, a literary motif. So what is a literary motif? Well, it's essentially the repetition of well-known elements from previous experiences or stories when telling a new story. So you and that other person who share the same culture, you have a certain story that you all know. And you can just drop hints about that story and you both uh, connect with the story that's being told. So for example, if I just refer to a ring, a ring by itself could mean lots of different things, right? But then if I started talking about the ring and I started talking about dark writers and I started talking about ints and I started talking about hobbits, the more I start giving elements of that story, we all know what I'm talking about, right? If we've all read the Lord of the Rings trilogy. Well, I'm suggesting that something similar happens in Matthew's gospel, that he assumes that what we could call the ideal reader of his gospel knows the Old Testament very well. He knows Deuteronomy 30 through 32, and he also knows how the original Exodus was a type or a foreshadowing of a greater deliverance that God will do sometime at Jesus' second coming. Okay, So this literary motif that I'm going to examine in this section is uh, uses, I say there at the bottom of that page, uses elements from the historical account of the Exodus. The Exodus was a complex but unified historical event that included the children of Israel's liberation from Egypt, their wilderness wanderings, and their conquest of the promised land. So that was the original ex Exodus. He finds them in Egypt, he brings them out of Egypt, he leads them through the wilderness, and then they finally conquest and take possession of the promised land. In short, the Exodus was God's establishment of his theocratic and mediatorial kingdom on earth. Initially, this mediatorial kingdom was led by Moses, who guided the former slaves from Egypt to Sinai, and eventually to the cusp of the promised land. Remember, that's where we found them in Deuteronomy 32. They're waiting on the plains of Moab to enter the promised land. It's widely recognized that the Old Testament prophets, particularly Isaiah, 
uses elements of the story of this historical exodus as a pattern for a future analogous event. So this would be a classic passage up here on the screen. This is Isaiah 11, 11 through 12. It's talking about the future day, Jesus' second coming. It says, in that day, the root of Jesse, so the Davidic king, will stand as a banner for the peoples. The nations will rally to him, and his resting place will be glorious. In that day, the Lord will reach out his hand a second time. You see that? A second time. To reclaim the surviving remnant of his people from Assyria, from Lower Egypt, from Upper Egypt, from Cush, from Elam, from Babylonia, from Hamath, and from the islands of the Mediterranean. So basically everywhere. There will be Jewish people scattered all over the world in exile, and the root of Jesse will stand as a banner and he'll gather them. He will raise a banner for the nations and gather the exiles of Israel. He will assemble the scattered people of Judah from the four quarters of the earth. So it's this redemptive event that the scriptures and uh, refer to as a new exodus or a second exodus. And it's due to the fact that they have experienced an anti-exodus or an exile, which came as the result of Israel's covenantal unfaithfulness. So they had an exodus, they were brought to the promised land, they broke the covenant, so they had an anti-exodus, so to speak. Everything was rolled back. They actually themselves experienced the same types of plagues and curses that the Egyptians experienced. But then when they found themselves dispersed throughout the whole world, Deuteronomy 30 said that someday they would be restored and returned. All right. So Isaiah's new Exodus motif is linked to the message of Deuteronomy 32, and thus to Matthew 24, 34. I'm saying this about Isaiah just for sake of time, but we could say it about lots of Old Testament passages. Another one would be Jeremiah 30 through 33, the book of consolation, the famous new covenant passage. Again, has many, many connections between Deuteronomy or with Deuteronomy 30 through 32. But just thinking about Isaiah. So the importance of Deuteronomy 32 to Isaiah's overall message can be seen in the opening chapter which calls on the heavens and earth to listen to God, and then proceeds to describe the sinful nation as a brood of evildoers, children given to corruption. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? Both passages go as far as to compare the nation of Israel to Sodom and Gomorrah. However, like Deuteronomy 30 through 32, Isaiah calls on Israel to repent and promises that God will avenge himself and restore Israel. In summary, Deuteronomy 30 through 32 and all of the other Old Testament passages that evoke that famous song have these five elements. First of all, there'll be a regathering of Israel to her ancestral homeland following exile. Two, there'll be a restoration of Israel to covenantal faithfulness made possible because God will provide atonement for her sin. Three, there'll be retribution on Israel's enemies Four, there'll be repentance on the part of Israel as the condition for the realization of all of these promises. This repentance is a genuine condition, but it's a condition that will be met because God will act to change Israelite hearts to bring himself glory. Finally, if there is to be a new exodus, it follows that it will have a ruler or leader like Moses. Furthermore, Deuteronomy closes with a reminder to the reader that no prophet has risen in Israel like Moses who performed great signs and wonders, as did Moses. The expectation is that, that, that this prophet would still come, all right? Just to th quickly think of some other uh, key passages, both from the Old Testament and also from Second Temple literature. So this is from the book of Haggai. 
This illustrates the fact that even after they came back from Babylon, that that wasn't the new Exodus, that they were still expecting something better to happen. Uh, the prophet there says, this is what the Lord Almighty says, in a little while I will once more shake the heavens and the earth, the sea and the dry land. So he did it once at the original Exodus. They come back to the promised land uh, under Cyrus, but only two of the tribes come back. Only some of those two tribes come back, and they're not restored. They don't have their former glory. Here the prophet talks about God doing it once more, shaking the heavens and the earth. Or in Zechariah, this is the famous passage that Jesus acts out when he enters the with the triumphal entry in Matthew chapter 21. That passage closes. It says, as for you, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will free your prisoners from the waterless pit. All right, it's probably an allusion back to Joseph being found in a waterless pit before he and then eventually the rest of his family go to Egypt. It's being used as a metaphor for the exile. The, the people are going to find themselves, so to speak, in a pit, which is the whole world. They're going to find themselves dispersed and underneath the covenant curses. But on the basis of the blood, Jesus's blood, the blood of the new covenant, God will free them from exile and rescue them. This is also shows up in intertestamental literature. So this is from the second century BC. This is Sirach, the last phrase there. He says, gather all the tribes of Jacob and give them their inheritance as at the beginning. Or even the first line, give new signs and work other wonders. So again, they're, they're looking back at their past. This is what God did once at the, at the Exodus. We're asking that he would do it again for us, that he would one more time act with signs and wonders and gather all the tribes of Jacob, okay? Not just Judah and Benjamin, but all 12 tribes. Just one more passage. This is from 2 Maccabees 2, 17 through 18. Again, second century. One of the objections to this, this argument sometimes is, well, the, the people are back, right? They're back, they have a temple. Uh, they are restored in a sense, but there's evidence that they themselves only thought of this restoration as partial. It was incomplete. It was still imperfect. This is what the writer here says. It is God who has saved all his people and has returned the inheritance to all and the kingship and the priesthood and the consecration as he promised through the law. We have hope in God that he will soon have mercy on us and will gather us from everywhere under heaven into his holy place. For he has rescued us from great evils and has purified the place. So instead of viewing what had happened under Cyrus as being the fulfillment of the Old Testament promises, they actually just saw it as an advanced installment. If God could do this, then he could also do everything that he's promised for us. And we're hoping that he'll have mercy upon us. Hopefully a phrase that resonates with us when we read through the synoptic gospels. All right. So we could go all the way through Matthew, but it would take a lot of time. And I want to just focus on the key passages that refer to Ganea. So what I did there on, on page 19 and going into page 20 is just kind of give you a table, table five. Table five just illustrates some of the connections between Matthew's story about Jesus and the Exodus or, or Moses. Okay, Most of these are not very controversial. But if we went through them all, it would take a lot of time, okay? When you get to chapter 11, <clears throat> the first time that Matthew uses Ganea, you've already heard enough of the new Exodus story that you know that that story is important to what he's saying about Jesus. He's sprinkled in enough hints 
that you as the ideal reader are already tracking along with them, just like most of you were when I said Rang and Ents and Dark Riders and so forth. If you know the story well, it's easy to do that. But when we get to chapter 11, we realize that because the people of Israel have not repented at the preaching of John the Baptist and Jesus, that this new exodus, this restoration from exile that they're hoping for is going to be uh, not forthcoming, to say the least. So let's pick up there on page 20. I'll start reading there in Matthew 11. It says, in Matthew 10, Jesus had stated that strife on his account between family members would continue until his coming. So he's already starting to talk about a coming or a return. And during that time period, uh, the restoration of family members connected with Elijah in Malachi 4 would not yet take place. In fact, this is how the whole you know, story begins. John is now in prison, and he's even questioning Jesus' identity. John's predicament and despair open two chapters in Matthew, which focus on increasing opposition to Jesus and his call for repentance. This section amounts to an indictment of corporate Israel. Many of the people under the sway of its hard-hearted leaders have rejected the Messiah. It's in this context of growing corporate hostility toward Jesus that Matthew introduces the first of his several references to an evil Ganea. He does it in verse 16 there. However, beyond the context, there are several indications that Jesus uses the Ganea in a pejorative qualitative sense in verse 16. This is the main reason I don't take the view that this is the Jewish nation viewed neutrally or positively. Remember that was option three on one of those original slides? It just seems that when you read Matthew's gospel, you don't want to be called this generation. It's a bad thing to be called. There's nothing neutral or positive about it. It definitely seems to have a pejorative flavor to it. All right. So first of all, the Ganea is compared to children arguing over what game to play. Since Jesus is making a comparison, it does not necessarily follow that he's calling the Ganea a group of children. Still, it does seem likely that this particular comparison was made because of the common familial use of Ganea and especially its use in Deuteronomy 32. In Deuteronomy 32, God's children are said to have more in common with the wicked cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. In Matthew 11, Sodom and Gomorrah are again mentioned alongside this Ganea. Second, it's clear that not all of Jesus' contemporaries are being included in the Ganea. There seems to be some places where the the character of the Ganea is over here, and some people are over here. But there's a separation that you could be living at that time and somehow not fall under the indictment of being part of this, this circle or this group, okay? For example, Jesus places himself alongside John, both of them outside the Ganea. Those in the Ganea consider John to be demon-possessed and Jesus to be a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. The accusation of being a glutton and a drunker likely provides another connection to Deuteronomy. It thus should be understood as a serious charge against Jesus. He's being labeled a covenant breaker worthy of death. We're seeing Isaiah 53 played out right for us, right there in the life of Jesus. On the other hand, I probably should say on the other hand instead of likewise. On the other hand, John has been accepted by many of the people as a prophet, which points to Kenea being used for a kind of people and not equating all of Jesus' contemporaries. Quoting there from the recent commentary by Conrad. 
Third, although the meaning of Matthew eleven twelve is notoriously tricky, so if you have your Bibles open and you look at verse 12, you realize that's a notoriously tricky verse, the whole violent men or people violently trying to enter, is the kingdom advancing or is the kingdom being attacked? Whatever's going on there, at least part of Jesus' saying there seems to refer to people doing violence against the kingdom of heaven, which presumably includes those responsible for John's imprisonment. It's not clear what the demonstrative. So he call it, he says this generation. So there's that pronoun this. Why does he say this? What's he pointing to? Well, I think it's likely that he's pointing to the violent men that he's just described. So he talks about violent men who attack the kingdom. And then he refers to him as this generation. Fourth, the context seems to point towards the Ganea consisting of those who have expressly rejected the validating signs performed by Jesus. When Jesus responds to John's questions regarding his identity, he does so with a list of signs from Isaiah associated with Israel's restoration. The two most clearly evoked passages, Isaiah 35 and 61, contain extensive Exodus imagery. Matthew eleven nineteen, 19, that last phrase there, that kind of cryptic, but wisdom is justified or vindicated by her works, might also be another connection between Matthew's text and Deuteronomy 32. All right, we'll skip ahead then to chapter 12. So if you look at chapter 12, this is the, the key passage that has the most references to Ganea. In the midst of growing opposition to Jesus, Matthew tells us of Jesus healing many who were ill in the crowds which followed him. Matthew says that this healing took place to fulfill Isaiah 42, 1 through 4. So Isaiah 42, itself a New Exodus passage, stands at the head of a series of servant songs that speak of the New Exodus. Therefore, this citation from Isaiah also points, at least indirectly, toward Isaiah's New Exodus. Despite these miraculous healings and the healing of a blind and mute demon-possessed man, many in the Jewish leadership continued to reject Jesus' authority and instead asked him for a sign, all right? And this is the point in Matthew's story where we're all supposed to feel the weight of, of their depravity, right? He just did something amazing, miraculous. They asked for another sign. Based on passages such as Deuteronomy 13, a sign would have been viewed as evidence of one's status as a true prophet and was especially associated with Moses. In the context of asking for another sign, after Jesus has performed many, Matthew places his second reference to the evil Ganea. So this is where they show up their little ugly head for the second time, right? This character in the story, the, the people who are asking for a sign from Jesus after he's performed so many. So Jesus' description of the Ganea as adulterous does not lexically match the references in Deuteronomy 32. Still, it does conceptually match the song's description of the people as making God, quote, jealous with their foreign gods. The Septuagint uses adulterous to speak of Israel's spiritual adultery in pursuing idolatry. The concept also appears in Jeremiah 31, 32, which contrasts the new covenant entered into as part of Israel's restoration with the Mosaic covenant that was broken despite God being, quote, a husband to Israel. Similarly, Ezekiel 16 describes Israel as God's adulterous wife who will receive God's judgment. And you can look at the other passages where this concept appears. But all of those passages, again, refer to a restoration. This restoration, however, that's talked about in Jeremiah 31 and Ezekiel 16 is conditioned on a change of heart and repentance. 
So the new exodus will not take place until the people of Israel repent. That's the condition by which they receive these promises. But this wicked and adulterous generation addressed by Jesus will not repent and instead will be condemned at the final judgment by the people of Nineveh, who did repent at Jonah's preaching. The implication is that apart from repentance, the Ganea faces condemnation rather than the promised restoration. And to emphasize these consequences, Jesus tells the parable of the impure spirits. This is in verses 43 through 45. So remember that little parable he gives about the house that gets swept clean? It's a very important parable, I think, in Matthew's argument. Strategically placed right before the middle of his five discourses, chapter 13. So it's at a a key pivot in his, in his uh, account. The parable illustrates the results of Israel's rejection of her, her Messiah. During the ministry of John and Jesus, some have repented and many experienced the healing and exorcisms brought by Jesus. However, collectively, the nation's restoration was only partial and temporary. Israel is like a house that has been freed from one demon and swept clean, only to have eight demons return to take up residence again. So, quote, Jesus's ministry had cast out the uncleanness and readied this generation for a new, unprecedented time of plenty. But the people have rejected him and so are left devoid of content. All right. At this point, am I just leading you along? <laughs> and is this all just made up? Well, I'm going to give you one piece of evidence. So it's always cool when you find an early church father, an early Christian who agrees with you. They could be wrong as well, right? But it's still cool if you can find one, especially if you can find one who himself spoke Greek. All right, so this next example is from, from Justin. So Justin lives in the second century, so about 100 years after Matthew. He knows Greek much better than, than you and I, and he also understands this passage in a qualitative sense. So in his dialogue with Trypho, Justin says to the Jewish Trypho that Jesus, by giving the, quote, sign of Jonah, demonstrated, quote, that your generation was more wicked than Nineveh. So you see that? He's speaking in the second century to this fictional opponent, Trypho, and he says when Jesus referred to that generation, he was referring to your generation, Trypho. So he seems to view Trypho alongside Jesus' original contemporaries as part of this group. At the bottom of the page, if Ganea is being used in Matthew 12 in a familial sense, it explains why Matthew follows the exchange between Jesus and the Pharisees in chapter 12 with a little short story regarding his true family. All right. So again, we have a lot of family connections in the Gospel of Matthew. There, Jesus explains that his, his disciples, those who do his father's will, are his mother and brother. See how that would be appropriate? If he's just said to the nation at large, you're an evil group of family members, you're separate from me, now it's much more powerful if he then explains that there is a true family that really belongs to me, that has a familial connection, and they're the ones who actually do the will of my Father in heaven. All right? Matthew 23, we got to get a little closer to the Olivet Discourse. So following his triumphal entry, Jesus' authority continues to be challenged by the chief priests and elders. It doesn't, it doesn't get any better, does it? It just keeps getting worse. And that leads to a trilogy of parables that condemn the Jewish leadership, but also speaks of a judgment that will fall more broadly than the leadership. This opposition leads to Matthew 23, where Jesus addresses the crowds and his disciples 
with a scathing indictment of the scribes and Pharisees for their hypocrisy. You guys remember Matthew 23, this scathing indictment of hypocrisy. And there again, Jesus holds, it's usually translated this generation in verse 36, accountable for all the righteous blood that has been shed on the earth from the blood of righteous Abel until the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah. By claiming to be the descendants of their ancestors, that's what they did in verse 30, Jesus argues that the scribes and Pharisees are acknowledging corporate solidarity with their fathers, which implicates them also in their father's guilt. That's Jesus' point. You shouldn't have claimed to be the descendants of your fathers, right? Because by doing that, you also are responsible for your father's sin. This solidarity is made clear in verse 35, where Jesus, just like Moses in Deuteronomy 32, addresses these leaders as if they were your ancestors. He says, quote, you murdered Zechariah. So whoever this Zechariah is, remember that's controversial. He's not someone who just died recently. He's somebody who has been dead for hundreds of years, but yet he can say to those people, you murdered him. Because then again, he's viewing them as part of a corporate whole. This generation's leaders are in solidarity with those who murdered Zechariah. So it is as if they did it themselves. A group, especially those with a common ancestor, can be held guilty for the sin of one member. So here I'd, I'd appeal to the example of Achan, right? And the, in the ultimate example, Romans chapter 5, is, is Adam, right? That if we all have one person as an ancestor, it's fitting if that person also, um, his guilt is our guilt. Therefore, rather than the leadership constituting all of the Ganea, it seems best to see the scribes and Pharisees as part of a larger whole that as a unit is responsible for rejecting Israel's prophets, culminating in the rejection of Jesus. So Conrad, who translates the phrase there as this kind of people, he rightly argues that the phrase is not simply, quote, a paraphrase for Israel or the present living generation of Israel, but is talking about this group of murderers whose contemporary representatives are the scribes and Pharisees. Conrad seeks to absolve those among the nation less immediately responsible for Jesus's death. However, there are indications in the context that the Jewish leadership simply incarnate the spirit of apostasy, which has characterized Israel throughout her history. So why can I say that? Well, just briefly, first of all, he refers to them as sons of hell, right? Which ties back in, I think, to chapter 13, the sons of the, or the evil one who are opposed to the sons of the kingdom. Second, that second paragraph, there's all kinds of familial terms here. He uses son, he uses father. He refers to the leaders as offspring of vipers. He laments over the children of Israel. Again, multiple instances where familial language is used. That plural snakes or vipers likely points to a long line of ancestors who have shared the evil nature of the contemporary leaders and Jesus's lament over the children of Israel who were not willing to be gathered demonstrates that this rebellious nature extended beyond the leadership, even among Jesus's contemporaries. All right, the next couple pages there, bottom of page 24, 25, I, I elaborate on an intertextual argument that when Jesus refers to gathering Israel, or he can't, he can't gather the people of Jerusalem, it's a, it's a reference to the, the return from exile, okay? So it's again, it's another 
new Exodus echo. It's this idea of being gathered from all the places where they currently find themselves. They're not willing to be gathered because they won't repent. And so the, the passage ends with, with, with what would be normally an ominous tone, but we'll come back to this idea that I think a condition is set up, that if the people will welcome Jesus, that they'll actually receive their restored kingdom. All right? So that's got us all the way to the all the discourse, but we'll spend the, the bulk of our time now looking at the context of what Jesus says in chapter 24 and 25, because that's really the, the heart of this. And we can come back and talk more about any of those other items in our Q&A time. So the all the discourse is the fifth and final of the major discourses in Matthew. I like to put on my hand usually when I'm teaching this. So not like a map of Michigan, but it's like a hand, you know, with the five fingers. So think of the five fingers on your hand. There's five major discourses. Just like the fingers on our hand are roughly parallel. The discourses are roughly parable. The middle one is the central one, but this is the last and, and final one. And this is Jesus's main point. If I was trying to summarize his big idea in his sermon, I think it's that the predicted end of the age will appear suddenly and without warning after a long, difficult wait. So my disciples should be busy serving and eagerly anticipating my return. So in verse one, Jesus had just left Herod's temple for the final time after having lamented over the city. As they were leaving, the disciples pointed out the impressive temple buildings to him. However, Jesus predicts that this magnificent complex, which is still probably under construction, will be destroyed. This prediction prompts the disciples as they walk with Jesus up the Mount of Olive to ask a two-part question. And I think it is a two-part question. When will these things happen? So first they ask a when question. And two, what will be the sign of your arrival and the end of the age? So what is this end of the age that the disciples ask about? Like other features of this discourse, the expression is drawn from the book of Daniel. It's often misunderstood as the end of history, all right? I think that's a common mistake when people read the discourse. They think end as in like curtains close, nothing more happens. This is the end of history. That's not how the discourse is using end. Instead, it's a complex of events. It's more like a campaign. And it brings this age to its completion and it ushers in the Messianic kingdom. It refers to Israel's eschatological new exodus, her regathering and restoration, the end of her covenant curses. To put it simply, the end and the all of discourse seems synonymous with the day of the Lord. So we're, we're used to the expression day of the Lord in the Old Testament, and we recognize that the day of the Lord isn't like a 24-hour day. It's a long, complex event that'll stretch out over years. And I'm suggesting that in the all of the discourse in Matthew, end functions the same way. The end isn't just like a, a dot, a punctiliar event, but it's actually a complex. So those are their two questions, a when question and a what. Jesus does answer both questions in Matthew, but in reverse order. And I put this on table six for you on the next page. It was a little large to put on a PowerPoint slide. But I think if you look at the content of how Jesus answers these questions, it becomes apparent that he first answers the second question, the what question. Everything from verses 6 through 31 have to do with things that you would see or hear or experience. Okay, these are signs. 
Then in 36, there's that peri day construction, that now concerning. If we've ever preached or taught through 1 Corinthians, we're used to that. You know, Paul just keeps switching to a new topic with a now concerning. It's related, but it's new. Jesus does the same thing. I'm switching to something related. It still goes back to the disciples' question, but it's your other question. So in verse 36, he begins to answer the wind question. And essentially, I could summarize the answer to the wind question is with, he doesn't know. <laughs> Jesus doesn't know when he's going to come back, all right? Which actually goes back to our original point, was Jesus mistaken about his return? Well, Jesus himself said he did not know when he was going to return. So after giving a warning, let's go back to 27. I'll just read a little bit more here. After giving a warning about being deceived, Jesus first gives things that could be mis misunderstood as signs of the end. Then he gives genuine signs of the end. The section concludes with the parable about the fig tree. And in this parable, all the things of verse 33 and verse 34 should be understood as the things just described as false signs and genuine signs in the preceding section. All right, so this is probably easier if we do try to look at it up on the screen. That might be a little small to read. And we'll go through this in a little bit more detail. But you start out in verses 4 through 5. Jesus gives a, a general warning about his followers potentially being deceived into thinking that he has already arrived. It's similar to 2 Thessalonians, right? You think that the day of the Lord is already here. You think the end has already arrived. Verses 6 through 14, he talks about things that could be mistaken as signs of his arrival. There's one paragraph from 6 through 8 where I think he talks about general things that will be experienced by all, the beginning of birth pains. And then in verses 9 through 14, he talks about things that everyone, not that everyone would see, but the things that would be especially experienced by his followers. And then in verse 15, he switches to speaking about specific genuine signs, the desolation of or abomination of desolation or the desolating sacrilege this time of great tribulation, and then his actual return to regather the exiles, all right? That's kind of the broad overview. I think the main takeaway that I want to make there, or hopefully emphasize, that if Jesus was asked two questions, a when question and a what question, and if he was going to say anything about when he was going to return, you would expect it to be in the section of the address that answered the when question, right? But instead, we find this parable about the fig tree in the other half of the discourse. It's in this, the what are the signs question. It's in the things that are seen and experienced. And so just the placement itself of the saying in verses 34 and 35, I think would lend us to or would or, um, encourage us to see it in a non-temporal sense. All right. Let's start going through some of these sections and just talking briefly about what Jesus says. So picking up at the bottom of page 28, we'll just look at this paragraph by paragraph. So that first paragraph, verses 6 through 8, these are non-signs of the end, things that I think all uh, people will see. They'll see wars, famines, and earthquakes. They might mistakenly assume that these were signs that the end had arrived because these are the types of things that are associated with the end. However, in this section, Jesus is not yet describing the end itself. Instead, these are non-signs. They're like Braxton Hicks contractions that can deceive us into believing the labor has already begun, or at least I've been told, right? I've personally experienced that. 
And of course, with hindsight, we can say that the Jewish war would have been one of these false alarms that Jesus warned us about. Indeed, Jesus, along with John, has predicted coming wrath due to Israel's failure to repent. And Jesus has also specifically predicted the destruction of the temple. However, it may be saying too much to argue that Jesus has specifically predicted the events of AD 70. Furthermore, it begs the question to assume that the disciples in Matthew's story ask about AD 70 in verse 3, as they yet do not know what will occur during the Jewish war. So sometimes the argument is made, well, he has to be addressing the Jewish war because that's what the disciples asked about. Well, they can't have asked about it. They don't even know that it's going to occur. Okay, so that's assuming um, part of the argument. If, as I will argue below, Matthew 24, 15 through 28 is not a description of the Jewish war, and the discourse does not present AD 70 as a sign of Jesus' coming, then it seems plausible that the Jewish war could be included in the non-signs of verse 6. It's one of the things that must take place, and it's part of the beginning of the labor pains, but the end is not yet. So if you ask me where does the Jewish war or the events of AD 70 fit into the discourse, I would put it here. It's one of those general things that will happen throughout the whole time period that you and I live in that could be misconstrued to be the end, but are actually not the end. They're just actually the beginning of birth pains. Then in verses 9 through 14, Jesus, I think, especially addresses things that will happen to his followers. So while he was gone, Jesus' followers would be delivered to tribulation, killed, and hated because of their association with Jesus. Many professing believers will abandon the faith and be misled by false prophets, but those who persevere in their faith will be saved. After the gospel has been preached in the whole world, then the end will come, all right? So that's key. At the end of verse 14, now we've reached the end. And then in verses 15 and following, he's going to zoom in and actually describe what that end then looks like. So he starts with genuine signs in verse 15. In verse 15, Jesus describes a thing or a person who will desecrate the temple so that it can, cannot be appropriately used, okay? That phrase there, uh, abomination of desolation or a, a desolating sacrilege is how he refers to it. And, and Jesus specifically says that it has a connection to Daniel. A similar phrase occurs in Daniel 9, 27 and 11, 31. But the very exact phrase appears in Daniel 12, 11. In Daniel 12, 11, the phrase describes the actions of the eschatological antichrist who will defile the Jewish temple and persecute the people of God. This sign was an appropriate sign for Jesus to point to because the appearance of this messianic pretender will indicate that the establishment of Jesus' kingdom is coming within a specific number of days. That's why it functions as such a good sign, because Daniel had already told us that when you see this man arise, that you actually can count down specific days until their kingdom is restored. Accepting a false messiah will be the ultimate example of Israel's apostrophe, apostasy, and as promised in Daniel, will lead directly to the return of her genuine Messiah. The Antichrist will likely be persuasive in part because he is himself Jewish. For example, Hippolytus viewed the Antichrist as a fellow Jewish Messiah, or as a false Jewish Messiah, who would regather Israel and rebuild her temple. Therefore, those that argue that verse 15 describes the Jewish people desolating their own temple are partially correct, but they overlook that Jesus is pointing to a specific act of apostasy that when it occurs will be a sure sign that the end, that is the day of the Lord has arrived. 
Paul uses the same individual as a genuine sign of the arrival of the day of the Lord. Furthermore, we have evidence that the early church understood Jesus is saying in Matthew 24, 15 to reference the Antichrist. All right, so that's the first sign. What about the second sign, this, this tribulation? It says, when this Antichrist appears in the temple, those in Jerusalem should flee because his rise will lead to an unprecedented time, unprecedented time of great tribulation. That's what it says in verse 21. Hagner suggests that there are three possible ways to understand this phrase. Jesus could be, one, referring hyperbolically to the fall of Jerusalem. Two, he could be referring literally to the eschatological judgment at the end of the age. Or three, he's using it as some kind of foreshadowing or type. I think the context best supports the second option, an eschatological judgment at the end of this age. So France counters that the phrase, nor will ever be again, there in verse 21, cannot refer to an end time event that immediately precedes the end of history. Carson makes a similar argument to France, but instead of referring to the end of history, Carson argues that, quote, if what happens next is the millennium or the new heavens and the new earth, it seems inane or silly to say that such great distress will not take place again. However, in light of the emphasis on persecution earlier in the discourse, it seems very appropriate, at least to me, for Jesus to tell his disciples that this final trial will be the last occurrence of such distress. If Jesus intends to describe the same time of distress spoken of in Daniel chapter 12, that distress in Daniel is followed by the resurrection of the righteous to everlasting life and the rest to everlasting contempt. Therefore, there was already an expectation in the Old Testament that there would be a unique time of trouble that would also be the final time of trouble. I think that's Jesus's point. There will be this horrible time of trouble, but it'll be short, all right? So another way Carson uh, gets around the fact that this return or coming of Jesus happens immediately after the tribulation is to argue that the tribulation extends over the entire inter-advental period, okay? So the tribulation begins in AD 70 and continues all the way until Jesus returns. That's why Jesus can say, I'll return immediately after it, right? Because it's this whole long period. But I don't think that fits in the context because the promise here is that for the sake of the elect, this period will be cut short. And that only seems to work if the period that gets cut short is now shorter than the lifespan of a normal man. If you just died of natural causes, then that's meaningless, right? And over this whole inter-advental period that you and I live in, thousands of generations have come and gone, right? And so I think it only works if this is a short period of time, but it's also the final period of time, and that's exactly what uh, Daniel promised, all right? Uh, let's, uh, let's skip ahead to page 32. We'll pick up with that last paragraph there. So we've seen the first two genuine signs. Then I, if you can follow along with this slide behind me, Jesus pauses and, and he has something of a parenthesis here um, where he describes again this, uh, the need to keep watch because of the potential for deception. But then after that parenthesis in verses 23 through 28, Jesus returns to describing the events that will occur immediately after the great tribulation. And I don't think you can get around immediately. I think immediately has to mean immediately. That's how Matthew consistently uses it all through his gospel. 
something happens and then something else happens with no interval of time in between. And so immediately after this great tribulation, this return that's described takes place. The discourse features of this section indicate that we have reached the long-awaited goal of the story, which Jesus has been telling in the discourse. Jesus will return to establish his kingdom and gather the previously exiled and now repentant Israelites from the four corners of the globe to enter their restored kingdom, just as the Old Testament promised. This restoration of Israel is the event that Matthew's readers have been waiting for since Matthew 121 promised that Jesus would, quote, save his people from their sins. That was the reason for his name that's given to, to Joseph. That's the, the climax. That's the, the expectation that we've had all through the story. We've been waiting for this to happen. And then finally, it does happen. We have this picture of Jesus returning and saving his people. And that paragraph there on page 33 that follows is basically my arguments in favor of seeing this being Jesus' second coming. So here I'm responding to the, the preterist position. This would be represented by scholars such as France or Gibbs, who argues that this coming isn't a coming of Jesus' second return, but it's actually his coming in judgment in AD 70. And those would be my arguments against that. But let's get to our, our final section here, this parable of the fig tree, verses 32 through 35. So after having reached the end, and having described the signs that will indicate that the end has arrived, Jesus closes this first main section of his discourse with a parable regarding a fig tree. First, Jesus draws attention to the general truth that the appearance of tender branches and leaves ready to sprout on a fig tree indicates that summer is near. Next, he makes an analogy between the general truth from nature to his listeners' experience. Thus, when they see all these things, they will know that it or he is near, all right? So there's three things that we have to figure out in this debated verse. First of all, what does Ganea mean? That's what I've spent most of my time on. Second, what are all these things? That's also important, because remember one of the arguments is that the second coming of Jesus is not included in all these things. And then third, this is the one I think maybe needs more attention, is what does it mean to pass away? Does that just mean they die? Does it mean they cease to exist? What's going on there? All right. So first of all, most understand this generation or Ganea to mean that all these things must occur while at least some of Jesus's contemporaries are still alive. However, as we have seen, the word commonly translated as generation can also mean a bunch of other things. Specifically, Jesus is drawing from Deuteronomy 32, 5 and 20, where the word is used as distancing language to describe Israel as a group of disobedient children. And he has used the word in this same familial sense throughout Matthew's gospel. So why does he keep referring to them as this generation? Why that type of language? Well, it's because they're disobedient children, just like they were in, in Deuteronomy 32. And why not my children? Because it's distancing language. It's like if I said to my wife, do you know what your son has done? Or do you know what your daughter has done? This happens commonly in the book of Isaiah, where God refers to his people as those people, okay? It's instead of my people, he's putting them at arm's length and he's distancing himself from them. I think that captures both the familial and the pejorative sense and can be best translated as these people. People is the best way that I've come up with for translating Ganea there. 
Second, what are all these things? You could potentially argue that all these things in verse 33 does not include Jesus' second coming. Remember, he uses it two times. He uses it once in verse 33, once in 34. But I think the, the, in 34, it'd be very hard to not include the second coming. And even if you wanted to not include the second coming, so some people would say, well, that just doesn't make any sense, right? To say, well, when you see all these things, then you know that he is near. Well, if his coming was one of those things, that seems kind of redundant, right? So if I accepted their argument and eliminated the second coming from these all things, I would still have to put the Antichrist and the eschatological judgment into that category, okay? And so at least for me, those would still have to be future things that no one has yet seen, they haven't taken place. And so Jesus is referring to something still in the future, okay? As Hokema rightly argues, it seems arbitrary and unwarranted to impose any kind of limitation on the words before all these things take place. Any understanding of these words, which excludes some of the items just mentioned, seems forced, all right? So I know some people would say my interpretation is forced and artificial. I'm arguing that theirs is, at the end of the day, we have to decide which interpretation has the least issues with it. Besides the structural argument, an intertextual argument can also be made that these, all these things in verse 34 intentionally echoes Daniel 12, 7, and thus should be identified with that passage's promises regarding Israel. So in that Old Testament passage, the heavenly messenger is asked, how long will it be before these astonishing things are fulfilled? The messenger, possibly the son, replies, it will be for a time, times, and half a time. When the power of the holy people has been finally broken, all these things will be completed. Considering the prominence of Daniel 12 and the Olivet Discourse to this point, and Jesus' oath-like use of truly I say to you, combined with his references to this Ganea, it seems likely that the, all these things should be understood as parallel to Daniel's all these things, the two passages saying the same thing. Therefore, it seems best to conclude that all these things includes everything Jesus has said about Israel's coming judgment and subsequent restoration, including his return to save her in a new exodus. One more piece then. What about this reference to passing away? Based on the parallel in 2435 in Matthew 5, it should be 18 through 19, where heaven and earth pass away, Jesus likely means that Israel, this disobedient group of children, will become something new, all right? So for me, I think this is important. If you look at Matthew's gospel, not only do those five discourses parallel each other, so you have the Sermon on the Mount, and then you have the Sermon on another Mount, the Mount of Olives, not only do those parallel each other, but there's statements inside of those that actually parallel each other. So up here on the screen, I have the one from Matthew chapter 5. It's also a table there in your notes. And then we have the one from Matthew chapter 24 so that we can see those together. So in Matthew 5.18, this is what Jesus says. He says, truly, I say to you, until the sky and earth pass away, the smallest letter or smallest part of a letter will not pass away from the law until all things take place. All right. So it starts out with what they would call a, a meta comment, or it's an unnecessary phrase. It's an attention grabber. You know, listen up. I'm going to say something really important to you. Truly, I say to you. 
Then he says that something will happen, or in this case, something will not happen. The smallest letter or smallest part of a letter will not pass away from the law. That's, that's the meat of what he's saying. That's the action in the middle. On both sides of that, he sets up a condition. Okay, the condition, first of all, is stated until the sky and earth pass away. And then the condition is restated with different words until all things take place. Okay, so when the sky and earth passes away or when all these things take place, then the law will also pass away. But until that happens, the law remains. Or the, specifically, I think here he's referring to the prophetic nature of law. The things promised in the law, the prophecies of the law will remain. But then notice the parallelism with what Jesus says here in 2434. Again, you've got this, this meta comment, truly I say to you, these people will not pass away until all these things take place. So the, the action, the meat is these people will not pass away. And the condition is until all these things take place. So if you're, if you're following along those heos on conditions, those are parallel to the way that Matthew 23 ended, right? You will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So when they say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, then they will see their Messiah again. Or in the parable where he talks about the man who gets thrown into the debtor's prison. You won't get out of the debtor's prison until you pay the last penny. So when the condition is met, the penny gets paid, the guy gets out of jail. Here, when all these things take place, that's the condition, is met, these people will then pass away, but not until then. And then, in case we weren't clear about the first one, whether the sky and earth actually will pass away, Jesus clarifies it for us here at the end. He says, the sky and earth will pass away, but my words will absolutely never pass away. What does it mean for sky and earth to pass away? Are they just gonna cease to exist? No, it actually means that they'll be transformed into something new, right? There'll be a new heaven and a new earth. And I would suggest that there'll be a new Ganea, so to speak. There'll be a new people of Israel. They were disobedient, they were perverse, they were adulterous, in that condition, they will never be able to enter into their promised kingdom. But if God acts to circumcise, to change their hearts, to give them the new birth, they will pass into something new. And then as new people, they can actually enter into this new world. Let me just pick up there uh, with that reference to 2 Corinthians 5.17. 2 Corinthians 5.17, a passage that we're all very familiar with, uses this expression, pass away to refer to the passing way of the old self that accompanies the recreation that has already taken place in the lives of followers of Jesus. So you and I, as members of Christ's body, as it, even as Gentiles, we've already passed away, so to speak. We've already been born again into something new, but what's happened for us individually will someday happen for the people of Israel corporately. So therefore, there is warrant to conclude that passing away is being used in verse 34 to describe the change that will take place in this generation as it transitions from the present age to the next. This understanding would be parallel to how the word is used in 518. It would match the Old Testament's expectation for those who enter the Messianic age, and it fits into the narrative of Matthew, which has emphasized the need for the people of Israel to repent. All right. 
Let's try to wrap this up just with this conclusion on page 36, and then we'll take some Q&A. Today's lectures begin by noting the tension which led Lewis to call Matthew 24, 34 the most embarrassing verse in the Bible. This tension can be explained in three ways. Either Jesus, Matthew, or the reader has made a mistake. I've argued for a specific variation of the third option. That is, I argue that the reader who finds this verse embarrassing has made a mistake because the verse was not intended to set a specific time for Christ's return. Instead, the Ganea, which was said to pass away, is the people of Israel, viewed collectively as unfaithful to God. Ganea is being used in a familial sense, and as the context of Matthew's gospel makes clear, Ganea is being used for a group of people who, when viewed collectively, are unrepentant and rebellious. This Ganea will pass away when Christ returns to bring this present age to an end and begin the next. But Matthew's all the discourse does not say when this will occur. So the first lecture today addressed the objection that Ganea in Matthew's gospel must be or is likely a reference to temporal contemporaries. The review of Ganea in a representative sample of Greek literature from Homer through the first century AD revealed that Ganea has a wide range of meanings and that it was not most commonly used to describe a specific group of contemporaries. Instead, it was most commonly used to describe a group of people who shared something in common, usually a common ancestor. In its broadest sense, it was used to refer to a race or a nation descended from one distant ancestor. However, it was also commonly used for other familial relationships, including immediate family or children. Deuteronomy 32 in the Septuagint uses Ganea in this sense to refer to Israel collectively as unfaithful children of God. However, this indictment is given in a context, and here I'm including chapter 30, that also promises that God will act to regather and restore his wayward children from an exile, which is likened to a return to Egypt or anti-Exodus. The return from this second exile would be a second or new Exodus. Matthew 1 through 21 employs the new Exodus motif to describe Israel's need to repent so that all 12 of her tribes may be regathered and restored. Matthew's Ganea sayings not only evoke Deuteronomy 32, but also are intertwined with this new Exodus motif and are used to describe Israel's corporate rejection of her Messiah, a rejection which will lead to her continued and even worsening exile. The parable of the room that was swept and then has more spirits that show up. Therefore, the ideal reader of Matthew is prepared before he reaches the Olivet Discourse to expect a delay, in quotations, in the realization of the promises to Israel and is looking for an answer to the question of when Israel's corporate rejection will end with the new Exodus. If Jesus were to address this question, the model reader would expect the answer to be linked to the Ganea sayings. Finally, we looked at Matthew 24, 34 within its more immediate literary context to look for how Matthew's all the discourse speaks of Israel's new exodus using Old Testament allusions and echoes. At least three arguments can be made from the immediate context supporting a qualitative interpretation of Ganea. First, leading up to the all the discourse, Matthew demonstrates that the promised new exodus would eventually come, but not immediately. Just before the discourse, the lead up to it, in chapter 23, Jesus uses Ganea one additional time to describe the nation collectively as unfaithful children of God who would continue to suffer until they welcomed him. Second, the structure and development of the Olivet Discourse indicates that one, Matthew is 
24, 34 is part of Jesus' response to the disciples' question regarding the signs of his coming. And two, all these things has to include the signs of verses 15 through 31. These signs in 15 through 31, at a minimum, include the eschatological parousia of Jesus. However, based on the original context of Daniel 11:36 through 12, 13, I argue that verses 15 through 22 of that all discourse also describe eschatological events which will occur just before Jesus' parousia. Third, the discourse continues to use the new Exodus motif to describe the future regathering of Israel. In fact, the regathering, which has been expected throughout the gospel, and which has been so closely linked to these sayings, is finally explicitly described in verse 31, just prior to the parable regarding the signs. Therefore, the immediate context of Matthew's Olivet Discourse leads the ideal reader to recognize verse 34 as a prediction of Israel's new exodus that will occur at the unspecified time when this evil age ends rather than a specific timetable for Jesus' coming, whether that advent is a coming in judgment or the final parousia. Jesus promised that this event would happen, and his words will absolutely never pass away. But he himself said he did not know when this event would occur.